Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, Sex, Sexuality, and Sex Work Channel. My name's Victoria Holt, and I'm a PhD research student at the University of Roehampton. And I'm going to be talking today to Rachel Stewart about a report that came out for the Doctors of the World. Can you tell me a little bit about who you are, what you research, and how you came to be involved with this Doctors of the World project? Okay, well, my name is Rachel Stewart, like I said, like you said, and I'm a I'm a, a PhD researcher at the University of Kent, and I have just um, I'm just about to hand in my PhD, like literally this week. Um, my speciality is the study of sex work. Um, my PhD is a thesis about how female ex- um, webcam performers experience webcamming as a form of sexual commerce. And um, my, you know, my general field of uh, expertise is around sort of sex work. I um, I did my law thesis, uh, my law dissertation about the legislation about sex work in this country. And to be honest, it kind of, it sort of like kind of happened because I'm actually, you know, I've got a lot of experience in the, in the sex, uh, the sex industry myself. I was, um, I was groomed as a teenager and I, I was, I was actually pimped and spent a couple of years on the street in Bristol and acquired quite a lot of, um, uh, sort of, um, sort of convictions from that period. And so I've got quite a unique insider view to to street to street working that is not generally the case. Um, and I started on a project with the East the East London project with the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine um, three years ago, almost three years ago to the day. Um, and they were researching the impact of policing on sex workers' health. And that involved um, interviewing sort of street street sex workers about their experiences around policing and how that impacted their health and you know wider social sort of issues. And a year, about eighteen months into that, we were like obviously deeply immersed in the research and we spent a lot of time on the road. And um, we were approached by the doctors of the world who were extremely concerned because. Um, an outreach service that had been funded to to um, you know supply sort of services to the women that we were we were interviewing was just about to lose their funding, and so we were invited to do a consultation about the issues that women perceived that they had and the the remedies that they wanted for those issues. So getting to the report, the first question that came up to me was in the report you contextualize the work that you did in the section about the background and you say in recent years specialist services have faced extensive cuts increasingly replaced by exiting services that prioritize stopping selling sex since funding was cut women in Newham no longer have access to the specialist services described above one may one that many described as invaluable can you just explain to me the difference between specialist services and exiting services and how that difference plays out on the ground and like how it affects women that sex work? So um, specialist services and the service that, that I've got experience of and the one that was working in the borough came at it from a health approach. They were, they were um, funded by the National Health and they were, you know, they weren't ideological in any way. They were just about making sure that this vulnerable population got the kind of medical help that they needed. But so also it's like harm reduction. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, harm reduction. But also as well, they were really good at sort of working around that, the kind of like the, oh. the lifestyle of these women. And as much as, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the vast majority of women that I interviewed were, were sort of really problematic drug users. That had impacts on the times of day when they were available to access, um, say, drug drug clinics when they were able to get to the doctors so what the the original specialist service did was make sure that they you know that they arranged so that women could go and see doctors like out of hours so the doctors would open up early to see women you know the the drop in the the drug services would arrange times when they you know they could see the women and they they would they were very non-judgmental about the women about you know sort of like they they were more concerned about their health than they were about them stopping selling sex. 
they weren't really concerned about them as sex workers per se. They were concerned about them as women who were in a vulnerable situation because of their their multiple years of um, homelessness, a lot of the time, their drug use, their pre-existing trauma. You know, they, they sort of tended to take a more holistic approach to, to these women rather than, you know, their primary focus being on them being sex working, you know, sex working and that they needed to stop sex working. Yeah, because I feel like with these exiting services, they see selling sex, as the worst thing that can happen and I know from talking with you in the past that from what you tell me selling sex is just like background noise to a lot of the women that are selling sex and exiting sex work is just like the least of their concerns and they need support around childcare, health, clothing, food and in the report you say that their two biggest needs are housing and clothing. So why do you think that there is such an emphasis on exiting sex work and not housing, clothing or mental health support, which the women in your report say are their biggest and most pressing priorities? Um, well, I think the issue the, the issue is around the kind of industry that's been built around things like trafficking. Yeah, so there's a, there's a whole rescue industry. The, these services are extremely well funded. These NGOs are really well funded. So in order to to justify your existence as as an NGO, you have to you know have evidence that you're helping people leave prostitution. So, so how do you do that other than encourage them to do that? And on a practical level, on the ground, what we found is that the provision of say, for example, condoms you know stopped when one service when one service lost the funding and the other service got the funding you know the certain people weren't handing out condoms anymore and when they were handing out condoms there wasn't a provision for condoms women would ask for condoms and literally we you know the the service provider would go into Dangerous and buy condoms which is a really bad you know that's bad planning that's a bad use of resources so they need bulk they don't just need a pack of three yeah, exactly. Need loads. Yeah. So it got to the point that when we were, the, you know, a couple of the women in the report mentioned that they don't see any outreach, outreach workers and the only people giving out condoms were ourselves. And we're researchers. That's that's not that's not our Yeah, because you say in the report that there was a hesitance from exiting services to hand out condoms because it would, like, quote unquote, promote sex work. Yeah, because I feel like what they thought would happen is if we don't give out condoms and the women won't sex work yeah. instead of what would actually happen is they would just sex work, but they would just do it in a more dangerous way. Yeah. Yeah. So let me just like step back a little bit. What and if I look at the report as a whole, what was it that doctors of the world wanted to happen with the report? Like what what where did they want to present their findings to you and like who what did they hope would happen? Well, they wanted it. They, they were, you know, and this is kind of ironic that in the, the 21st century that a French-based um, NGO would come into, you know, the East End of London to do missionary work. And that's basically what they did. They were very concerned about um, a very vulnerable population with very little specialised provision, how that how that um, marginalised population would function once the specialised service had its, um, its funding removed and handed to a service that, that doesn't specialise in sex workers. Its, it's specialisation is, I think, rehousing like domestic violence victims or something. So it was really, really concerned about this population. But, you know, and so that was the, that's what... Um, the doctors of the world wanted to know is what the services were, you know, what how the women were receiving services, not what people were saying they were giving, but what actually women, women's experiences were and what women needed with a view to, to funding, you know, to finding funders to, to make provision for, for these resources. It seems like what's so heartbreaking about the report is it's so doable. Like, it's just so doable what's needed. It's like what the women's sex working need is like a hot drink, somewhere to sit for a few minutes, somewhere to store their belongings so they're not frightened of going to sleep. Like it's so doable. And considering how well funded these like, again, quote unquote, exiting services are, 
where do you think the money and the services are going? Because it doesn't seem to be going on buying condoms and hot drink for people, which is kind of what they need. Like, I, I think what I find so shocking is I can't work out why something so basic isn't being isn't being done. I mean, my understanding is, is that when the new service took over, that they spent a lot of time training people, getting people to, you know, through DBS checks and stuff like that so that they could actually work with the women. So they, they, they needed specialist training, is my understanding. I don't know where the money goes. And actually, there's a question that needs to be asked. Where is that money going? Because if Newham Council is, you know, paying this service to, to, to provide, you know, paying for a service to be provided and it's not provided, well, well then, I, you know, the people living in Newham probably need to be asking the question, where's the money going? But... Yeah. I think what, and this is the issue, and I think what happens when you have well-meaning services who don't understand the complex needs of the population that they're attempting to help. I mean, for example, I interviewed a woman who'd been to see this exiting service that had replaced the service that had been there originally. And um, she, she, you know, she wanted to help to regulate her drug use. She wanted a methadone script. But she also wanted some shoes because she's, you know, she's. It's, it was um, December when I spoke to her. She was, you know, it was cold. She, you know, she she was in some really soft, like summer shoes, and she asked the service for shoes, and they offered her art materials, and uh, she refused the art materials, obviously, because she needs shoes. But she ended up not getting shoes, but being offered art materials. Now, that I, I just don't understand the logic of that. Why why that would be the case. You know, why would you offer a woman who's asked you for a relatively inexpensive item and is obviously in need why you would not give that to her and why you would offer her what you thought she would need? And I think that's really symptomatic of this whole discussion around sex workers is that their voices never get um, never get put forth, you know, and never heard and what the, their assumptions made about their needs. Oh, Absolutely. I mean, Ruhama, who is a very well-known exiting service in um, Ireland, got like nearly a million euros in funding. And a sex worker that I know in Ireland wrote to them and said, I want to exit sex work and become a counsellor. Can you help me pay my counselling fees so I can go back to school? And they never wrote her back because that's not what they think she needs. I don't know what it is they think she does need, but it doesn't, that, that doesn't seem to be, I feel like, you know, these existing services get so much funding, but they get it without actually talking to any sex workers. Or if they do speak to sex workers, um, they tend to talk, you know, the sex worker, there's a kind of like glass glass ceiling, it seems, for sex workers. So you can be invited into projects to, to, to give your opinion, but you won't be in a position of, of any real power or authority. So your voice will be used so, you know, it appears to be sex worker led, but actually I don't think there are very many sort of sex workers on the, C- uh, C- you know, NGO C- CEOs. No, and I think you're right. I think that sex workers are invited and it's like a performance of listening. Yeah. It's like, look, we've ticked this box that says we've listened to somebody and that's kind of all we need to do because it yeah. says that we've listened to someone. But also as well, there's this sort of presumption that, one sex worker fits all yeah so i was actually i was actually talking with the secretary of the of the um of uh the local mp and he was saying that they'd uh, only a couple of weeks ago they'd had some meeting with an organization and they'd had a one of the people there was an indoor sex worker but they're talking about street work so you know the there's this kind of there's this uh there's this failure to recognize how um, diverse the sort of sexual commercial um, landscape is and that what happens is that we get you know you get people talking for you know so so you get the more privileged sex workers talking for street workers but then street workers are used as um, you know as the the yardstick with which to um, regulate all other types of sex worker yeah because they're the most vulnerable it's really yeah. It is, and it's definitely something that I've noticed because even though street-based sex workers potentially might engage with services more, they only represent, I think, less than 5% of yeah. the 
the sexual market in the United Kingdom. And yet they seem to be the, the, the image when people talk about sex work who aren't necessarily engaged in the industry that much. I mean, coming back to exiting services, I wanted to, something that came up a lot in your report that I'm interested in, because my research is around sex work and domestic abuse, it seems that it's especially difficult to look at the needs of sex workers who want to exit because it seems that the person that's coercing them into the industry is also their partner or their, their boyfriend. And a lot of exiting services seem to think that a pimp is this like shadowy figure when actually it's usually their partner. And Emily Kenway talks about this when she talks about trafficking, that actually the the person doing the trafficking is often the boyfriend of the person that's going to be selling the sex. So can you talk a little bit about these blurred lines of of sex workers and like the pimp boyfriend thing? Yeah. Um, I mean- or how you saw it? I mean, one one woman I spoke to, and I, you know, I think it's quite important to sort of like say this as well. Like, I come from a sort of like a traveler background. I look quite travelerish, yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, one of the women that I interviewed on the road with the the East London project was um, was a traveler, and so she would only talk to me. She wouldn't talk to her with any of the other researchers there. And she'd been in this really violent relationship incl- that it included like physical abuse of her daughter. Okay, her baby daughter and the social worker pressured her to staying in this relationship because, you know, the perceived stability of that this relationship offered. So quite often because of this failing to understand how subtle and how insidious um, uh, sort of uh, exploitative relationships are, how they, you know, how women can be um, socially isolated uh, there's a there's a, a, a misunderstanding and then the te- a, a sort of like a kind of you get this whole perfect storm where this subtle kind of grooming sort of like exploitation is going on and at the same time you have this kind of agenda from you know a sort of policing from sort of social services and other social actors to kind of make women uh, make choices that, that fit in with the social norms or the, he- you know, the heterosexual norms of like 2.4 children. I mean, this- Yeah, and a family unit regardless yeah. of what, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and the, this woman, you know, this baby experienced like some serious abuse, yeah, you know, the, 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 the father had perpetrated, but she was, you know, she was pressured to stay into the, in this situation. I mean, you know, another really horrific time, not in this report, but in the report in, in, that we did for the East London Project. So, you know, I'd been doing the report with the East London Project for 18 months when I st- we started on this Doctors of the World report. So at one stage, we were sort of doing both. And one of the women that we met, met in the East London Project uh, described this absolutely horrific scene to us where she'd, she'd been made pregnant by a customer and her boyfriend, her abusive boyfriend, had tried to abort her at eight months pregnant. She'd managed to, she'd, she'd picked up a knife and managed to get away from him, stabbed him, I think. Called the police and the police arrested her. Yeah, that happens. The police, so you can only imagine. She, they, they see her as the instigator of the violence, which is just yeah. awful, awful. I mean, you know, somebody who's eight months pregnant, you know, he, he put his, his hands in it to abort the baby. You know, this just horrific. I mean, you know, and it's it's that type of situation. But also as well, a lot of the women that we spoke to were homeless. Um, uh, right, hang on. You need to stop the recording a minute. I've just got an error up. I'm going to pause it. Okay, we're back on. Okay. So um, a lot of, the, you know, like in both of the reports, and, and the, we, took, we did these reports over... Uh, a time period that, that sort of crossed the, you know, just before. So we did the first report in October 2019 and then did the second sort of backup in uh, October 2020. So basically we did two reports that covered the set, the the, uh, the uh, autumn of 2019 and then October 2020. And what we found is in both incidences, in the first instance, like the majority of women were homeless and that presented real issues because it's really hard to, if you're homeless in a in an environment and your ex-partner lives there, you've got nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. You're always on the road and you're really easy to find. You know, and that in itself presented real difficulties. You know, we, we interviewed one woman who, 
you know, would still run into this really abusive ex wherever she went, he was there, you know, because they, they're both homeless on the same street, yeah. you know, and there's a, a, a real reluctance to move from that street because that's where your friends are and that's where your safety is because people know you, you know. So, you know, the, the, the domestic violence was exaggerated and made worse by all the other sort of issues they had going on. Yeah, and I think as well, like, when your partner, I think, you know, you were talking about how some men would wait around their girlfriends to come back and then, like, take all their money off them. Mm. And women were very much, not all the women, but they were being coerced into sex work. And I often wonder what exiting, like, exiting services often seem to think that there's this really neat category that we can draw. Yeah. Around when actually there's a, you know, a lot of the violence, as a lot of feminists say, a lot of the violence is happening in the home and actually work is not the place where this is. Yeah. When you talked um, just then, when you mentioned how the police arrested this woman when she was acting in self-defence, I mean, something that ran through your entire report was how the police were treating some of the women that they were working with. And I know that the National Police Chiefs Council they wrote guidelines in 2019 about working with sex workers and they specifically wrote that the policing of sex workers should emphasize protecting workers from exploitation, understanding their circumstances and building mutual trust between the police and workers. Your report has women talking about how police forced them to empty their handbags, which they knew would have condoms in, in a public space, humiliating them how they would find women for being outdoors, even though they were, they were homeless, and police stopping and searching them just because they're known to be sex workers. And so it seems that police are actually deliberately targeting sex workers because they're vulnerable. Yeah. What can, else can you maybe tell us about the relationship between the police and sex workers in the new area? Well, the East London project that I was involved with immediately start before starting the Doctor of the World project is a quantitative research, yeah. Sure. And what we found is that the policing of sex workers, even though it claimed to be focusing on on um, customers, actually the the onus of the of the arrest was still very much heavily uh, on on women, and that what was happening is that was increasing the amount of violence that they were experiencing. So the policing, even if you were arrested, even if they just talked to you or moved you along, that increased your vulnerability to violence, not just from customers, because there's a tendency to focus on the viol- the the violence between sort of sex workers and their customers. But actually, sex workers experience as much violence from from um, sort of other members of the public or, you know, partners and on occasion police. Right. They do from, from, from customers and actually the policing exaggerated the issue. And how would the police, can you maybe give some examples on how the policing would exaggerate them, so, their risk of violence? So, for example, I mean, you know, if you've been moved, if you've been moved away from a space where it's safe, you know, where you can see the road, if you're stood on the corner of the road and you can see the street, you can see who's coming. If you're having to walk, you know, if you're having to walk, work in a back street, yeah, you don't have that view. And we, you know, we interviewed one woman who was, who was kind of hiding behind a fence and sort of like, you know, sort of like trying to attract the attention of customers from behind the fence. So there's no opportunity there for her to gauge who she's engaged, you know, who she's engaged yeah. with. There's no opportunity for people to work out what car to get into or whatever. There's, you know, it just reduces the safety massively. When the second, the second round of the, um, of the of of the uh, sort of research, and so we went back out on the road in October 2019. The first thing that I saw were police chasing a lot of women. Sorry, sorry, uh, October 2020. The first thing I saw, and this is in lockdown, yeah, was police chasing women, yeah, but without masks on, running past groups of men that were sort of like obviously breaking lockdown, you know, curfew regulations. And I had this conversation with two women hidden behind a bush that if it hadn't been so tragic, tragic would have been laughable. Um you know, I was passing condoms to women in a bush because they were frightened to come out of the bush because of all the police that were flying up and down the road. And at the same time, I'm passing condoms. One of them was asking about, you know, how how, the, how she can arrange an abortion. 
you know, she's got, there's an unwanted pregnancy and she's trying to negotiate this from behind a bush because of the police thing. So looking at the report and seeing the testimonies, um, the testimonials of the women and I guess, you know, the aggressive and heavy-handed approach from the police, what do you think needs to be done or what recommendations do you think needs to be done so that the police are not are not so heavy-handed and aggressive in their approach? Like, like, what way do you think that the police can, if at all, go about policing the area? Well, I mean, I suppose it's a case of this. The police just react to, to the legislation, don't they? They just react to, to the political the political will. Um, and I, so I think what we need to do is go back to the table and really talk about what's going on with the policing of sex work. Because yeah. the policing of sex work is based on these kind of arguments around trafficking, most of which don't have any foundation in actual kind of rigorous research and are being used to push us or political uh, abolitionist agenda that means that that policing is only ever seen as a way of, um, of um, you know, sort of monitoring women, you know, like actually physically policing them, and it does nothing to protect them. So, for example, so we on one hand we hear about this really heavy-handed policing going on during the lockdown period when, um, you know, the police were were handing out what they called, you know, what they called the as asbos. Women were saying they were getting asbos, an antisocial behaviour order. But in England, that's you know they they stopped being used like several years ago. Um, so they're handing out these orders that are handwritten, yeah, telling women that they can't go out on the road. So there's something going on there. But at the same time, you've got really vulnerable women who are not being helped in their vulnerability because you know. Policing isn't just about, you know, enforcing law and order. It's about protecting the community. And, you know, I spoke to one woman who who'd passed out on the right on on the road that we were interviewing on. So Romford Road is a long arterial road that's about four miles long in East London. Mm. Okay, it's a very public highway. Um, you know, the time that we, you know, the time that we were interviewing was in lockdown, and women were telling us about stuff that had happened during lockdown. And one woman that we'd spoken to had passed out on the street in the middle of August and had uh, was was basically like asleep passed out for eight hours on the main road so bad she got sunburned so badly that she had to take herself to hospital and nobody helped her so she was led for eight hours passed out a woman on her own and in that time she had a shoe stolen yeah so a, a shoeless woman passed out on the road sunburned and nobody helped her and another time we heard about a woman who we've we've interviewed a few times over the couple of uh, past couple of years who's been horrifically um gang raped at one stage and she'd been sleeping in um she'd been sleeping in a van uh, no sorry she'd not been sleeping in a van she'd been sleeping in a telephone box and had got pneumonia and it was only when she'd got pneumonia and hospitalized that she actually got put into a hospital so she spent all all winter sleeping in a phone box on this very, very busy high road. She's obviously very unwell. Mm. Nothing was done to help her. So, you know, where you know, so policing is punitive, but doesn't do what it, it says it, 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 you know, that it's supposed to do, which is protect. No, it seems to be punitive and deeply aggressive. Oh, hugely aggressive. As well. When you spoke about how a lot of the issues tend to be around like trafficking, even though they're based on, I guess, like false information and bad research, what your report really seemed to highlight was there was a real difference between British-born sex workers and migrant sex workers in terms of health, access to children, like how much they rely on services. So can you maybe talk us through the difference and also, considering that difference, why so much focus seems to be on like trafficked victims when actually it seemed to me, based on this report, that migrant sex workers are actually doing fine. Mm. They, they really seem to be knowing what they're doing and and using the situation to their advantage. So, yeah. can you maybe talk us through a bit about what you learn? Right. So the main difference is in this particular population, and I, want, and I want to specify this is just one area that we've worked in. You can't possibly extrapolate this one area to like all, all forms of sex work. But in this particular area, 
the 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 women that sort of like is were originating from generally Eastern Europe, Europe, generally Romania, although we did speak to a couple of Bulgarians, and who and quite a large proportion of were also Roma. Um, they tended not to have problematic issues with drugs. They tended to be mothers with families in Romania who they were sending money back to. Um, they would come for short periods of time, work intensely, and go back. They were, you know, they were they were quite organised. They were renting properties in the in the private sector. They were accessing health healthcare. They were just, you know, they were, you know, functioning, you know, like people do when they don't have lots and lots of other issues going on. Whereas the English women we met, and the majority of the women that we did speak to were not only just English, but they came from the area as well. So they were, you know, they'd originated from East London, all the home counties. Mm-hmm. So this whole idea of like, you know, people being brought here to work is spurious. It doesn't show up in the um, in in our research. And um, what and you know, even if you were like sort of second generation migration migrant family, you you still came from this area. And what it showed though is that. The, the the English-born women tended to have passed through the care system, you know, like of the original report, we interviewed seven, 17 people, I think, six had been through the care system, seven had been come from homes that were abusive, yeah. Now, six six people out of a population of 17 is, you know, and we, we, we don't, you know, with qualitative research, and this was, this was um, a consultation, it wasn't a sort of rigorous, rigorous research, you know, six out of seventeen is over, is is all you know just about half, and it's less than one percent of kids are in in care. So, disproportionate amount of care work, uh, care sort of like you know kids that have been through the care system, you know, disproportionate amount of women that have not finished education. That you know, these were just really, really sort of like um, marginalized and very and quite traumatized women who were tending to to self medicate their their trauma with drugs. And consequently, there was just these multi-layers of just vulnerability, none of which was being addressed. But what was being addressed was there was this one aspect of their life. But only that one aspect of their life, right? Yeah. I mean, the original service had tried its best, but to be honest, it was kind of cut right back to the very, you know, to the very bone anyway. I mean, it was doing its best under a lot of, you know, duress, to be honest. It had its service cut back over the period of a couple of years. Um, so, you know, it was, it was really up against it anyway, you know, and then that was removed. So that one sort of strands of that women had, had been removed and, and replaced by a service that was not only not meeting their needs, but actually pushing them towards, um, the criminal justice system. One of the women that we, we got to know really well over a period of three years, because I think it's quite important to sort of like say that, you know, we, we'd been in this area by the time we conducted the, the report for the Doctors of the World, we'd been working in this area for 18 months and we'd really connected with like a lot of people. We were there quite, we were doing a qualitative, a quantitative research, but we're quite ethnographic. And one of the women that we met, we'd been in communication with regularly for, for the three years that we were out there. And um, she'd, she'd engaged with this, this exiting service in as much as, They'd come up to her, asked her if she wanted any help. She said yes, and she'd signed a piece of paper. They didn't, she didn't hear anything from them for months, and then they started to phone her hostel. So she was staying, and the hostel said that she was fine, she was okay, she just wasn't there. And because they didn't speak to her, they they reported her missing to the police. So they kind because of... Because the exiting service hadn't heard from her. Yeah. Right? So they reported her to the police, which she was really unhappy about. And then refuse. Well, yeah, because now you're just visible to the police. Yeah, exactly. So if you find a police and report someone missing, they're going to go and look for them, you know. So there, this kind of idea somehow that there's an entitlement into people's lives, whether they want you there or not, that in doing so can cause, you know, you, you, it's just a mess. It's just a mess. I think that, you know, one thing that comes out through the report as well is this need for, like, really holistic care. So not, like, encompassing and intrusive care, but just holistic care. And, you know, you talk about how women are just stuck between mental health services, which they can't access because they're using drugs, and drug services, which they can't use because mental health is their primary need. And I recognise this because I used to work for a drug and alcohol service, 
So I don't think this is something that's unique to Newham. I think this is something that is across the board. And it almost seems, you know, deliberate. It's this way of locking out vulnerable people and passing the buck from one person to another so no one has to get their hands dirty and no one can be blamed. What do you think is the best way of responding to this, like, really messy juncture of need of like mental health and substance misuse and I understand that you probably or may not have the answers because it is really messy but but what did what did you think might be the best way of responding well our our report for the doctors of the world recommended that what was needed was a centralized service that was specialized for these women's needs and that would that would enable them to access you know access help for the different areas of their needs so it's sort of like one-stop shop ideally with somewhere they they could sleep because even in um in lockdown the you know obviously lockdown changed the amount of women that were were homeless like you know the first report like everyone except for three women were homeless second report it was kind of like reverse or most of the women except for three were housed but they were housed in very unsatisfactory conditions yeah so somewhere where women can uh, can stay sort of temporarily but as a sort of like a, a sort of stopping point as they're sort of like moved to you know towards other services that can help them better you know that there, there, there needs to be a central point so that they can't fall between the gaps because this is what happens constantly i mean if you're homeless and you're an addict yeah you're 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 going to be working early late nights early mornings you're going to be sleeping in the morning and then you're going to have to get up and deal with your addictive issues you don't want to start with during Right, that's the best part of the, the the nine to five gone, but the services operate from nine to five. Mm. So there's no there's no kind of understanding of the needs of these women because actually the needs of these women are never, you know, that it's never peer led. No, the service is never peer led, and the service needs to be peer led. No, exactly. I mean, and I I used to work in sex worker outreach, and Sex workers don't need condoms given to them at 11 o'clock in the morning. They need them at 11 o'clock at night when they're working. Yeah, And yet, because it wasn't a peer-led service, it just that's somehow never seemed to be taken into account. Because the sex workers that are working in the day, that are working in office hours, are not the ones that are going to be dependent on services. No. They'll be the indoor workers that, you know, might need a bit of help but probably won't need the holistic support and care that street-based sex workers will need because it's just a totally different way of working and what what came through the through in this report and what came through with the london school of hygiene and tropical medicine report the east london project and i have to and i've not mentioned this but i worked in conjunction with the east london project that was run by Lucy, uh, uh, professor lucy platt and dr um pippa grenfell and dr jocelyn elms and this report is amazing in as much as it was really, really in-depth and really sort of quantitatively marked what people asked. And consistently it was the same. When we asked people what they wanted in that report and in this report, women said that they wanted a place where they could go and they could sit down, they could get off the street, they could be not judged. They, they, you know, loneliness was massive. Oh, my gosh. I imagine. Loneliness was massive. You know, they wanted somewhere where they could go and be heard. Nobody's first response to that question, what, what is it you need, was I need condoms. It was I need a friend, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that I need somewhere I can go, I can leave my stuff so it doesn't get stolen. You know, I need, you know, and, you know, there's so many other things that aren't, you know, that you can't quantify as well. I mean, you know, if you've got a place where you can go, you can find out who the dangerous punters are if you don't already know, because most of the women don't have like smartphones, they have little burner phones because they're losing their phones and whatever. Um, and that way you can find out who's dangerous. You know, there's there's a kind of like, you know, there's a central hub. But more importantly as well, if we, if we had a, a place to work from, we could bring people to the women. You know, if you had a place that was open the hours that, sort of, that, that suited them in their location, well, then you can have specialist services. You know, like... We, when we conducted the, the report, we really didn't want to be intrusive, you know, because we're, we're conducting a report at night, 
in their work environment with no chance of any therapeutic assistance afterwards. So we didn't want to ask really pointed question. But by this time, we'd known them for a couple of years. So, we, you know, they were quite open with us. So when we, you know, we were getting them to talk about their health and, you know, there were certain things that were coming up like over and over again. And we weren't asking, but people were mentioning anecdotally. And they kept talking about their chest. You know, they kept talking about coughing up black stuff on their chest, chest infections. Now, Newham has got the highest TB rate in the country by a significant margin. Like, the second highest is quite considerably below. London's got the highest rate of TB, and Newham's got the highest rate in London. Yeah, TB is an issue in London, in, in, in Newham. And a lot of the women were living in a tent city next to Westfield, um, where TB was live, there was live T- TB. Now, that is is a a health issue for the women. It's a health issue for the wider wider community that is so avoidable, you know. But it's not being dealt with, and it's not being acknowledged until a for, you know a French NGO comes into London and points this out. But I think one of the reasons why that might be is because. The methodology was so different to so much other research that's been done with sex workers, right? You didn't go in there with very specific questions like how many condoms do you need on an average night or, you know, what kind of violence, da 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 Like you went in there with not even just open-ended questions, but not even questions, just let's have a conversation and see. And I think that that is probably what garnered such unique research. So talk to me a little bit about why that was the method that was chosen like why not having specific questions but just going in there and having a conversation over 18 months like in like in what way do you feel you've got such unique information because of that well we got we got really unique because um you know I'm a former sex worker I'm also a recovered addict and I'm very open about that so you know that kind of like sort of breaks down borders uh, barriers but also as well, we'd been out there for a long time, yeah, so people knew us, yeah, but not just the street women, yeah, because you can't just be in an, a community, you need to be familiar to everyone in the community, mm. so you become part of the landscape, you're not sort of like, you're not doing safari, you're not going in and coming out again, you're there. Um, but also, if I ask you a question, you're going to give me an answer. If I ask you what your experience is, I'm going to get a much more nuanced response. If I go and ask you a question, it assumes it kind of gives my knowledge a superiority, like I know something that needs to be responded to. Whereas yeah. that's not the case. Because even though I'm a former sex worker, I, you know, I've not, you know, I was a teenager when I worked on the street. You know, that's not, not my life anymore. You know, and even though I've done more recent sex work, I've, you know, that's that's historic and that is that's a different type of set. So I have commonality. But I'm not of that community, so I cannot make assumptions. So, you know, I didn't we didn't see the, the TB thing coming. And other things that we never saw coming, like, you know, the fact that, we, you know, the, the women, that, the majority of women that had had smears, I'd only got them when they were in prison. Yeah, know? that really stuck out to me as well. Yeah, like a prison was, you know, like a role that prison was playing in these women's lives. You know, they weren't getting health care unless they was in prison. That's not what prison's for. You know, yeah. the amount of women, and, you know, I think the oldest woman we interviewed was 44, weren't having periods. You know, these are these are women of fertile years who aren't having periods. And this is like starvation and stress. The, the starvation, you know, the hunger was, was horrific. We spoke to a woman, we spoke to her on a Wednesday. She'd been released from prison on Sunday, not eaten since she'd come out of prison. She literally had the, the clothes that she stood up in. And a lot of the women hadn't slept either. That was something that really, really jarred me when I read was how, how necessary sleep is to just yeah. day-to-day existing and how so many women just weren't getting it. Yeah. And they were either not getting it because they couldn't or because they were deliberately forcing themselves to stay awake. Yeah. Can you maybe explain why they would do that? Well, because um, the the area that that they they're sort of like working in and living in is is uh, you know it's it's quite a deprived area. You know, like Romford Road is not a nice road. You know, there's a lot of there's a you know there's a lot of dealing goes on there. There's a lot of there's a lot of like petty crime that goes on there. That um, you know, it's not the sort of place that you'd want to sleep in at night. Yeah, you might you might you might feel safer catching some sleep in the day. 
you know, but you're not going to be wanting to sleep at night. And, you know, so why would you want to sleep if you know you're going to get beaten up if you're asleep? And women reported being beaten up whilst they were sleeping. So why would you fall asleep knowing that you're, you're going to, you know, likely to be hurt or robbed or worse, you know? So you you wouldn't, but also as well, I mean, they're not, you know, like it's not comfortable. Like sleeping in a stairway is not comfortable. So you might get a little bit of rest, but you're not going to get REM sleep on a, on a stairway. You know, and some of these women have been sleeping rough for multiple years. And a lot of the women spoke about how they were just terrified of sleeping because they had so many night terrors and nightmares yeah. and flashbacks and it just, I don't know why it jarred me as much as it did, but I think it's because I just never even thought about it. Well, the, you know, let's, like sort of street work is like street sex work, I think is markedly different to other forms of like sex work. And I think it's really important that, that we have this conversation that you cannot, you know, you can, can't really compare street work to other forms of sex working. You know, like all of my research, not just this, but everything I, you know, all of my career is around study of sex work when i study webcamming 50 percent of these women are educated to degree level but just cannot make money in this precarious time mm-hmm. whereas the women on the street you know they they you know the majority of whom were addicts had started using in their mid-teens around about the same time they were leaving home because of abuse or being put in care you know these were very very traumatized women who quite often had had like you know been the experience you know the the um had experienced like domestic violence was children as part of a relationship but also their children were impacted as well so you've got multi-generational impacts of trauma to a group of already marginalized women and the thing is as well which never ever gets talked about and which we really need to talk about when we're talking about the work that the non-specialist service the damages the social harms that non-specialist services do when they try to cater to uh, sort of like sort of specific needs that they're not geared towards. It's this: is that if you marginalize, if you mar- if you criminalize a woman, you marginalize a child. Yeah. So I spoke to a woman who's who who'd given birth within the last. She'd she'd been homeless all through um, lockdown. She'd given birth. The, the the daughter had been taken away, you know, put into care. But her own mother was working on the same beat. So you've got three generations of the same family on the same street, basically. Mm. You know, and this was, um, you know, this was not, you know, this was, you know, this happened. This was not uncommon. There's a multi-generational impact. So by not dealing with the trauma that the women are dealing with themselves with their drug use and the the subsequent uh, sex work that they're using to fund the drug use, you're actually passing on this poison chalice down to the next generation. Whereas... To stop, you know, to to stop, to stop this woman's like trauma by helping her, would stop the transmission of this trauma. The amount of social harm that I feel. I mean, so many of the women in the report seem to be so much happier with the services that came before, you know, and they knew a lot of the workers there by name, and they seem to have a very good working relationship with them. And when these new exiting services came along, I feel like. Not only did they not plug in the gap, but they, as you say, they created so much more social harm. They made women more visible to the police by calling the police on them. They put women at risk of sexually transmitted infections and diseases because they didn't have condoms. And that is what they're being funded to do is go out and provide these things. So the level of social harm is not just it's not just keeping women's heads above water, but it's actually really causing them more damage than would be there if they were just doing the job that they were funded to do, right? But also as well, there's a kind of like, there's this this sort of perception with exiting services that that if you get women out of sex work, if you get, get stop them selling sex, that somehow everything will fall into place. But actually, and this is my experience, is that the the the... The damage that was done to me because of my early sex work, and when I say damage that was done to me, the, the, the convictions that I acquired made it very hard for me to get a job. Mm-hmm. I had to hustle my way out of hustling. You know, I had to sort of like be able to fund an education, yeah, that would allow me to live a different life. Now, if you'd have just like told me to stop working, but then not give me an alternative, how am I going to, because I'm not going to be able to get a job. 
I'm not going to get a job with it. Like, because convictions for prostitution stay on your record forever. So I'm so open about it. It's not like if I went shoplifted a couple of years ago, now it's gone. It's there forever. So the, yeah. the, the, the sexual exploitation I experienced as a teenager still haunts me in my 50s. You know, one of the reasons I did a PhD was a PhD will kick convictions into the long grass. So if you take a woman from sex working, you, you take her away from sex working, but then you have to deal with the fallout and the social harms that the stigmatization brings with it. But that's why a lot of these exiting services will say, well, we want to decriminalize sex work and just criminalize the buyer. And that way, the actual selling of sex will be no longer stigmatized. But unfortunately, what a lot of these exiting services forget is a lot of women who are either street-based sex working, that is not the biggest problem that they have. And for a lot of women that are indoor working, they're very aware of their options. They just choose to sex work because it's more flexible. They can fit it around childcare. They can fit it around uni work. It pays better. It's less work, da-da-da-da-da, whatever. And it just shows such an absolute disrespect for women's autonomy, but also women's trauma and women's needs. If you just come in and say, well, you know, we'll just take you out of sex work and then everything will be fine. And it's like, well, that's probably not the biggest, that's probably not the worst thing that's going to happen to her right now. Yeah, exactly. But also, well, this, this is part of a much broader, like, sort of political debate. Um, the, the, the debate around trafficking you know, didn't really exist, like, hadn't really existed for 100 years till 2000. And then there was this, this this thing called the Paloma Protocol where it suddenly got raised as an issue. And then governments across the world start to address it. And they address that. How do you address, like, how do you appear to address trafficking? And why would you need to appear to address trafficking? The reason why you would need to appear to address trafficking is that America appointed itself as the as the, the global policeman of trafficking. It also controlled the International Monetary Fund. If you want to access the International Monetary Fund, yeah, you have to, among other things, prove that you're tough, tough, tough on trafficking. How do you do that? You do that by arresting sex workers. Mm-hmm. And 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 so you you see these horrific kind of cases, like you know, um, you know, sort of. Like, for example, when the Argentinian sort of banking system collapsed, one of the first people to arrive in Argentina was Catherine McKinnon, a very, very powerful, well-known uh, sort of like governance radical. Radical, anti-sex work. Yeah. So talking about the harms of trafficking on Argentina. Yeah, because it's a sort of form of like, it's a form of imperialism. Yeah. If you want to access the money, do what we say, and we don't want prostitution. So you know what this is, what's going to happen, and the whole, and virtually the whole planet is falling under this, under this. Sort but of it's like- such a, it's it's a very tempting notion to say that if a bad thing exists, which is prostitution, if we just criminalise it, then that will get rid of the bad thing. And what that does is it allows governments to look as if they're doing something by criminalising women and buyers without actually having to look at themselves and at the structural reasons as to why women are vulnerable to selling sex in the first place. And it's this really particular, really bizarre form of self-scrutiny whereby it's like a performance of caring about women because, look, we're going to criminalise the buyers, but we're not actually going to do anything that actually maybe makes it possible to pimp a woman out or makes yeah. it possible to traffic a woman, or makes it possible for a woman to be in such dire poverty that she's going to need to sell sex in the first place. It's so bizarre to me that we kind of, the governments don't want to look at their own role in the kind of, you know, upholding of the sexual labour market, yeah. which they I mean, are responsible for. I mean, as well, this this kind of idea as well, that somehow if you kind of... Um, introduce the sort of criminal justice system into the equation that somehow it's going to make things better yeah because actually uh, a book that's recently re- released i think it's called aggressors in blue by tom barker talks about the amount of sexual misconduct by police so you're creating a pool of marginalized marginal vulnerable victims whose word is never believed yeah mm-hmm. but um but also as well it makes me think of this back in i think it was 2005 and 2006, Operation Pantamata. 
Yeah, we're basically in in two waves of raids. Um, police across the country. I think it's in the UK. Yeah, raided about fifty percent of the working like establishments. Arrested like about four five hundred people. I only ended up prosecuting three, four or five actual trafficking offences. I think three of them were in prison anyway. Um, but one of the people that they picked up um, the first in the first round of arrests actually was trafficked. They sent her back to Moldova, where she was horrifically beaten, raped, abused by her traffickers. Sent back, she got arrested in the second wave of Operation Pentameter. Um, she was spotted as being um, uh, a victim of trafficking by the Poppy Project, um, who took her to court, took, took the case to court. She got she got compensation and the funding then got their funding then got removed and given to the Salvation Army. So you know there are there's such an there's such a thing as political trafficking as well, and I think this is what happens with the, the negotiation around like legislation around sex work sex working. There's a lot of political mileage to be made out of you know out of uh the sort of like prohibition of sex work there's so much mileage because it's such an easy like we were saying before about the police it's like it's low-hanging fruit and it also stops the you know any form of government having to be like well maybe if we had more flexible childcare or better benefits or better health systems or more accessible mental health care so women weren't relying on substance misuse i mean Looking at the recommendations, so so much of what the Doctors of the World report shows is so doable. Yeah. And so where do you think might be the best place or the most feasible place to start, like in terms of making these women's lives less dangerous? I mean, it would be, you know, like just having a place where they could sleep safely because you know during the covid lockdown you know there was you know sort of like their issues around housing were temporarily solved because they were being put in hostels <clears throat> but that will stop now that the the, the uh, pandemic is yeah. to be over so we're going to go back to where we were before and um so you know just with somewhere safe to sleep would would really would really make a difference and you know or a, or a place a base that people could sleep you know touch base with you know they could they could get their you know their their you know they could have a shower they could get their medical needs attended to you know that would just that would start i mean literally you know when you when you haven't got anything to eat or, or nowhere to sleep that's what you want to start off with you don't really want to get into an ideological debate about whether you should be selling some sex you want to go to sleep you want to go to bed yeah 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 you know and i, I feel like and actually, not that I want to give them any ammunition, but I feel like if you, if these exiting services do have an ideological agenda, these women are probably more likely to listen to you if they're warm and well-rested and they've had some food. Yeah. They're probably more likely to listen to their alternatives, listen to what you have to say, than if they're starving, freezing and exhausted. Yeah. And I mean... The- but there's a danger here as well that that um that we get silenced um you know the the women that that I interviewed get silenced but we get silenced as well when we when we make kind of when we do reports like this when we when we sort of like you know stick our heads above the parapet we get accused of like you know you know of not knowing what we're talking about I mean you know today on Twitter like I posted the report and somebody's come back with me like you should read the Handmaid's Tale. You know, I'm like, okay. What does that even mean as a response? Yeah. I mean, well, so I'm going to read a book about how, you know, rich, rich women live off the backs of poor, you know, sort of like exploit poor women to maintain the patriarchy that they that they benefit from. Yeah. What's your point? Because that's, that's, that's the point here is that powerful radical feminists are making a, a lot of political mileage using the pain of, of marginalised, uh, victimized women in order to to build careers yeah these these they these people the compa- the anti sex working campaigners are making you know they're political pimps they are the pimps oh, they definitely. are building careers on the back of these women i mean julie bindle wouldn't have anything to talk about if sex work didn't exist but the tragic thing is is um in the time that we were out there interviewing and um, we were there for three years 
there was a woman that we met who 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 over the period of the time that I met her, she got gradually sicker and sicker. She, you know, you know, her drug use got worse. Over the pandemic, um, she'd got arrested for some breach of some community order or something, got sent to prison for eight days. This is a thing as well, people. They're sending people to prison for eight days, four days in the pandemic. You know, and we know how rife um, with uh, COVID the prisons are. And she died. I saw her the week before she died. And I spoke to her the night that she died. And although her death was accidental, that death was entirely avoidable. Mm. She was entirely, she was the most amazing kind of articulate woman. You know, she'd studied, she'd been to university. She just, you know, she just couldn't get over the early trauma that she'd experienced without, and she wasn't getting the help that she needed in order to do that. Mm. Because, you know, we don't need to be fixed. We need to be able to give them the tools in order to repair us mm. so that we can stop the damage that we pass on otherwise. And know? that we're strong enough to deal with our trauma in a, in a manageable and non-destructive way. Yeah, and everything, you know, what came back continuously is that, that women wanted to be heard by other people who weren't going to be judgmental, preferably, you know, from, the, from a similar background. But I think it's really important to remember this. When we... When we um, did the research with the London School of Hygiene, the, the East London project, we spoke to women and we found out that 50% of them had actually had their, their kids removed from care. The doctors of the world in that report, what we got is more nuanced information in as much as everyone had had their kids removed. They weren't necessarily in care. They would be with other family members and stuff like that. So, you know, what's happening impacts in ways that, you don't necessarily look for you know you don't necessarily look for the the women that we speak to were more damaged by the community than they than they damaged the community but that was never spoken about the women that we we talk we talk to and this is all in the east london project experienced really high levels of violence including from the police with the east london project in the six months prior to the that those interviews 11 percent of them had experienced physical violence at the hands of the police 35% of violence, if you count things like verbal or, or verbal abuse, emotional abuse, there's a lot of violence. A lot of it is coming from the police, the people, the, the, the exiting services and the, the political um, uh, sort of like the politically motivated actors will say, say are there to help these women. We need a rethink. But before we do anything, we need to help. We need to, we need to put some provision in place for a population of women who are dying unnecessarily young, we should not be talking about TB in 21st century East London. Yeah, we should not be talking about that. We should not be talking. We should not be talking about women uh, sleeping on the street in COVID. You know? and I was I, about to ask you then if anyone, if anyone listening, can take anything away from this report. Yeah. What could it be? And I feel like that's a really amazing message. But do you have anything else? Just that um, I um, I find it very like when I went when I started interviewing on the street, and you know, my life has been incredibly different since like you know since those those couple of years that I was sex worked as a teenager. What really shocked me is the fact that the street hadn't really changed at all. Yeah, but what had changed was the addiction of the women. Yeah, the same sort of social actors were there the dealers were there the pretty boys like all the, all the people that were there before were still there but the women were in a much worse state than when i than when i'd been sex working the women's primary problem was their drug use and the drug use was a consequence of their trauma yeah these are traumatized women yeah you cannot extrapolate the trauma like you know sort of street level sex working with other sex, forms of sex working it's disingenuous to do that, and it doesn't. It's it it causes harm. It causes harm uh, to to other types of sex workers if you try to legislate uh, against them using street sex workers or yardstick. Yeah, street sex workers need people from their community to help them and to gu- you know to to guide them to the services that they deserve, and actually are entitled to because they belong to the community that they live in. They're not an alien that's been dropped in from outside. They belong to that community and they need to be 
helped by that community. And they're not so I think that when any services are implemented, that's the first thing that we should look at is how can this community start looking after themselves. I remember talking to someone at National Ugly Mugs once and she said that really outreach services should be working themselves out of a job because you should be teaching the community sex workers how to share that information and support amongst themselves. Yeah. And I think that this person at National Ugly Mugs is the first and only person I've ever heard say that because so many other outreach projects are very much like you know, we have to do, it's a very Victorian way of looking at, you know, like these these women, these girls, these people, yeah. and we know what they need. Yeah. But I think as well, I think you have to sort of like say to yourself, if you're thinking about working with sex working women, are you doing it because you want to help or are you doing it because you've got something actually practical to offer in terms of resources and in terms of like lived experience? You know, it's you know, you you need you know, women repeatedly ask for to for for lived experience. Yeah, they wanted to be you know heard. They wanted to be around people that 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 wouldn't judge them. And unfortunately, street workings, street level sex workers are probably the most one of the most marginalised communities in this country. In, yeah. in, e- e- even among the sex working community, I think is yeah fair to say. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's 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 what I've got. There's a, there's a population of people out there that are suffering, that are dying unnecessarily, that need that need practical, um, non-judgmental, non-ideological assistance. Thank you so much for doing, for putting the years into this report and for making the information available and for talking about it as well people so they can know where can they find the report where is it available so it's available on the doctors of the world website i also like you know i didn't do this alone i'm the one speaking at the moment because everyone else has got kids and they're busy doing (laughs) stuff yeah as 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 people do but i've worked i've worked i worked on the report with my colleague pippa grenfell dr pippa grenfell at the london uh, london school of hygiene and tropical medicine the previous report that i was i was party to the um the the London School of Hygiene report, which is called the East London Project, you know that was an amazing report. Um, all of the information can, will be placed in the the blog that's attached to this, so that okay. people can just click on and they can go and find. So it's on the New Books Network show notes. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's all there, so people can go and sort of read what we're doing and see, you know, if you can if you can help help. Well, thank you so much, Rachel. My pleasure.